Well, we're here with our 11th lesson, believe it or not, 11th lesson for January the 7th, and we're moving right along, and I hope today we'll get close, if not, we'll get close to finishing up the passages here on John the Baptist, and he'll emerge again at some point as uh, we continue our study in Matthew. But we have not met, of course, for the past uh, two Sundays because of our holiday schedule, which is normal for a faith community church. So with that, I wanted to take a brief moment and just to look back uh, at least over chapter 3 about where we are with John and what we've looked at, just to kind of bring everybody forward again and get you thinking about about John. It won't take very long to do that, five or six minutes. But we looked in chapter 3, verse 2 as we began, and focused upon John's message and the focal point of his message. We, we looked at why John was so great and why he was held out to be uh, such a great man. And while he was unique, and we looked at that, uh, what made him great was the message. What made him great was his obedience in the time that he was called and the mission that he was given and his faithfulness to that mission because Christ was among us. Christ had, had been born. Messiah was here. And John had the privilege of preaching about what that was about. So you can sum up what it is about, what it was about then and what it is about now in just one word. And that word is repentance. Repentance is what he preached from the Greek metanoia. We looked at that. And that's what he was doing. And he was doing it very boldly. And it wasn't a, a, a new message in, in terms of the need to repent, it's just that people doing that day, particularly the Jews, saw repentance in a different light. And if they saw themselves and considered themselves indeed to be children of Abraham, then they naturally thought that repentance was for somebody else. Okay, repentance was for the lost, hell-bound Gentiles. Repentance was for them. Because after all, they as sons of Abraham had been chosen. But John preached that they were to repent, and they were to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and that there was going to be a requirement, and that requirement was for people to respond to the truth of God's word, respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, which convicts them, John would tell us later in John's gospel, not this John, but the other John, that they would be convicted in their hearts uh, about what righteousness is. Okay, and about what sin is, and about a judgment coming. This was John's message, and it's all summed up in that one word, repentance. Matthew says that he is, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that he is the voice, he is the one who's crying in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. He's the one that was foretold, and we went back, and we looked at the scriptures in Matthew, or Malachi, rather, chapter 4, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 17 which speaks of him coming in the spirit and power of Elijah not an actual Elijah you know pulled from heaven and sent back down here to earth but he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah and then in Matthew chapter 11 verse 14 and 15 Christ himself gives his own confirmation of that he says and if you can bear it then John is Elijah that's what he's doing 
He's fulfilling that prophecy. And uh, he was doing exactly what he was supposed to do, exactly in the realm of time, right when he was supposed to do it. And there's every indication that he was doing it exactly like Christ called him to do it. To be faithful to one central message. And that was the message of repentance. And I can go a long time on <laughs> repentance. I can do it ad nauseum if you want me to. But we can't forget about repentance. This is what separates us and what we believe. This is where, as we like to say, call it what you want, the rubber meets the road. You've heard me say over and over again, nothing happens until you repent. When God is dealing with us. When He takes us to a point of belief in our life, whether it's about initially in our life, our salvation, our change, the new birth, we certainly have to repent. Our confession is made up of faith and repentance. Our conversion, rather, is what I meant to say, is faith and repentance. So that's very important. We went on and we talked about how this was Jesus' message. He began to preach repentance in Capernaum and in Galilee. We talked about it as Paul's message. It's Peter's message. It's about repentance. And it runs cross-grain with the natural human heart, does it not? Because it requires that we take time to respond to the truth of God's Word that's being brought to bear on our life through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The Word itself bearing witness to us Christ would say a number of times, you don't, you don't believe, he says, because my word is not in you. You're not, you're not hearing, you're not responding. You don't want to believe it. You don't want to think that it applies to you. And yet you can't escape what's going on right here, right? Can you identify with that? You cannot escape. And it leads us to repentance. So in the third chapter, still in verse 4, we began to look at John's lifestyle and what that meant. John uh, was typical in some ways. You know, we talked about his, his uh, hairy coat and his clothing and so forth, that that was typical and expected of a prophet. We looked at some Old Testament scriptures that verified that. He looked like what the people thought he was, and that was a prophet of God. He looked the part. But it says more about his separation, that he lived out away from people, apart from people, his focus was totally upon the Word of God and God's call upon his life. And I think that's part of what made him great too, his dedication, his obedience, even unto death. This was John the Baptist. And then in verse 5, we see that as a result of what John was preaching, that it wasn't just a few folks who happened to be crossing the Jordan right where he was who came to hear him. But the whole area, the whole region, people were coming in droves to hear what he was saying. And here's this guy. Now we might consider him a little weird, this guy who lives out in the wilderness and eats whatever it was, locusts and wild honey. Who helped me with that? What did you, what did you say? I, that was interesting. Share that with us. We, we're in Israel. We heard that the honey may not be necessarily bee honey, but it could be date honey that they sweeten. Date honey, you're date saying, honey. yeah. So we've had some folks who've, you know, gone to Israel to check this out and make sure that. They <laughs> <laughs> were looking for the bee. Yeah, looking for the bee. <laughs> there are probably no bees. I don't know. They have a lot of flowers. They have bees in the Middle East. Yeah. Okay. Bees everywhere. There's flowers. Okay. 
But at any rate, he was just relying upon nature. He was the, does anybody remember Yule Gibbons? Anybody remember? Okay. But that's what he was. But the issue is that he was separated. He wasn't about the things of the world. And we went to 1 John and we looked again at this issue about being separated from the world. And this is, this is John the Baptist. This is, this is who he was. This is what he did. But the people were coming in droves to hear this message. And you can imagine, this wasn't the message that the Jews were preaching about coming and submitting to ordinances and ceremonies and so forth, and then actually going through a baptism. This is what your average Jew would have thought about when they thought about baptism, because this is how people who were, or Gentiles who were proselyted into Judaism, this is how they came. There was a baptism associated with that. And that would have been their general knowledge about Baptism. I saw a piece not long ago where they have uh, excavated these uh, Jewish temples and so forth, and there were these, they said they're baptismal pits or whatever where they would baptize the people who were coming. No, this is about, this is quite simply about having a heart check. This is about looking within, responding to the truth of God's word. And their day that Messiah was here, okay? The day of the Lord was present. He was going to be and was indeed present among them. And this was John's message. And he would be revealed. And we talked about how their ministries, talking about the ministry of Christ and the ministry of John the Baptist, pretty much started at the, the same time there with what, what they were doing. God brought this together again in the fullness of time. It happened exactly like God the Father had prescribed for it to happen eons ago. So they came... And they confessed their sins. And the ones who came and confessed their sins right down there at the river, then they were baptized. They were baptized. So that's what we had looked at so far from chapter 3, verses 1 up through verse 6. So we begin today looking at verse 7, of course, as we follow through. And we read verse 7. From Matthew 3, but when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, nowadays, if there's a group of re revival meetings, you say, or whatever, or some sort of emphasis or effort by the church that's focused upon evangelizing, actually, uh, coming forth with an evangelistic message. That's what you're praying for. That's what your scriptures are about. That's your target audience. Uh, we might look at this and say, would, would this perhaps be the best way <laughs> to get people to hang around and listen? Okay. Is this what you use, brother, down on the streets of Atlanta, Jeff? Uh, on occasion. On no, occasion. No, no. <laughs> okay. In other words, he's responding to them. John has spiritual insight. And he knows the history of the Jews. And whether or not he looked at these people and recognized them and knew that they were Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, we don't know. Obviously, he had some knowledge about them because he refers to them as you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is a strong message, is it not? And their first response would most likely be, well, well who are you? Okay, you nut out here in the middle of nowhere, eating locusts and wild honey. Yeah, you got a crowd, 
But who are you to call us in to question and to refer to us as a brood of vipers? And we'll look at that closely here in just a minute. But remember that these Pharisees that he mentions, these were, this was the ultra-religious group. This was the group that was extremely ceremonial. They were strict, very strict. They were elitist is what they were, isolationists. And you often see their name associated with the scribes or the keepers of the law. And we went through this, so just a little bit about it. And then the Sadducees, who actually controlled the temple, were ultra-liberal. They believed only in the first five books of the Bible, what Moses has written in the Pentateuch. They cared very little about formal religion. We might not think about that when we think about the Jewish leaders. We might think that, well, they were all about that. But they were different in their ideas about formal religion compared to the Pharisees. There was division there. And they often argued and carried on with one another. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. A lot different from their Pharisaical brothers. You often see their name associated with the chief priests. And they were the smaller group, the Sadducees, amongst those, that group of Jewish leaders. Most of them by far were Pharisees. So that's who he's talking to. And he mentions, the scripture mentions after that, that he was baptizing. And I thought maybe just for a moment I would stop and talk about baptism in particular here. Uh, I've been studying, of course, in the uh, elder training program and have been blessed to lay hold of this new uh, book that came out, well, last, last fall, I guess it was right before the Shepherds Conference out in California. Uh, it's called Biblical Doctrine. About that big, big white book. Looks like the old family Bible we used to have at my house. <laughs> but a little thicker. Uh, of course, the uh, authors are Dr. MacArthur and, and uh, Mayhew. Uh, but I've already learned to uh, cherish that collection because it's very readable. I keep saying that. <laughs> I thought when I cracked it open, I'd have to take yet another class to understand what was going on. But it's not that at all. You would enjoy it. I dare say everybody who wants to learn and have a great reference book and be on target with their systematic theology needs that book. So I found, I uh, went through there and I'd been studying, just about to be tested on some material. So I looked at baptism in particular here. And there are a number of specific references here. Uh, from all four Gospels, we find basically three types of baptisms, water, spirit, and fire. That's what we find. But here also, it's broken down so that you can look at the different baptisms. In other words, if, we talk, if we're talking about a baptism of repentance, we're talking about the baptism that John was involved in, John the Baptist. Um, he was baptizing in water. He was immersing in water. And the requirement was the baptized had to repent. Uh, and these were persons who were coming, of course, before Pentecost. But they were required to repent. Uh, I said it was immersion. That's important. And it basically allows us to recognize them, as the information says, as Old Testament believers. Based on the information that they had at that time, they were coming in repentance. They were doing that examination. And it was a thorough, valid examination. We know that from what John said about it. It required introspection. It required a person looking into their heart and understanding what their need was. 
and understanding also that only God could provide that need. He was going to do that through his Messiah. The sin debt was going to be paid. So we look at a baptism of repentance. This is the way it's, it's termed. And then we often think in terms of the local church baptism, which, of course, nowadays is accomplished through a, well, a pastor or, or elder in our church, again, through water, through immersion. Uh, the baptized, uh, they, these are the ones who believed from Pentecost forward. We're talking about the local church. Pentecost, or the, that is the Holy Spirit coming and now indwelling the believer, indwelling every church member. This is local church baptism, and the requirement is obedience to Christ. This is the result, rather, obedience to Christ uh, for, of his command to be baptized in a local church. So those who have, uh, their testimony is that they come to Christ for faith, uh, through faith and forgiveness. They've sought him through faith and repentance. Their testimony is that their life has been changed. They have yielded themselves to Christ. They believe Him. They're trusting in Him for forgiveness of their sins and nothing else. And they come and they are admitted, if you will, uh, through the ordinance of baptism into the local church. And then, of course, thirdly, you have spirit baptism. And Christ performs this. Spirit baptism. The means is the Holy Spirit of God. And the baptized, they are uh, those who believe, of course, after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to fill us and indwell us continually. The condition, of course, is faith in Christ, again through immersion, and it results in our entrance into uh, the universal body of Christ, not just a local church. Of course, you understand that someone can come and say some words and be baptized and not be in the church. You understand that. And there's probably a whole lot of that going on. I say probably, yet in my spirit I'm convinced there's a lot of it going on. And it goes back to what we're talking about here in the first place, does it not? It goes back to this issue about repentance. Repentance in the life of a person. You know, when we talk about repentance, we're, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about a total yielding of the heart. And even when I say that, I'm not talking about perfection. Because we're not perfect. The Bible is clear. We will continue to battle with the flesh. The flesh is not redeemed. I think one of the best ways, a simple way to talk about it and to make it where we can wrap our, our minds around what, what a true repentance is, and we're going to look at that in depth here in a little bit. What a true repentance is, it's like the old farmer says, it's about putting all your eggs in one basket. There's nothing left out. This is what I'm counting on. This is what I'm given over to. It's the person of Jesus Christ, that he has paid my sin debt as a believer in him, and there's nothing else. We might be tempted at times to look at our works and the things that we think we can bring to the table to appease. I would say to you that that in and of itself is a work of the flesh. There's something that tells us that we might get a little extra feeling, a little extra oomph in our spiritual life if we can do something. And isn't it, isn't it an effort to keep 
to, or rather to not get the cart before the horse. And by that I mean to make sure that what we're doing for Christ, what we're doing in the church, the way we're raising our families, the way we live our lives, who we are, is because of Christ. It's not even about us. It's not about us showing Him anything. It's about us being obedient to His Word that He might be able to use us. That's what it's about. So easy. And I know there's some fine lines there. And we're encouraged to examine ourselves time and time again to examine ourselves. So a baptism of repentance, local church baptism, and then spirit (coughs) baptism, which Christ accomplishes in us at our new birth. And we possess literally the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. That is a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. Because when it's a real, a true, a valid experience, and it is for every believer, there's so much that's accomplished. It's not just that we now have the power, we have the access. We have the means, if you will, to be obedient, to be overcomers in our life, in this progression. But you know, it's other things. It's not like you're never alone. I like that. I like, I like knowing that whatever the case, I am never, ever alone. Nobody likes to be alone. I don't mean just in a room with the door shut and nobody in there. I'm talking about a feeling, if you will, an experience of loneliness where there's no one you can go to, where there's nobody who understands, where there's no light. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And the Spirit of God provides that presence and assures us, and I'm happy to say this morning, that He never, ever fails. Never. You can't say that about anything else in this life. You can't say that about your spouse. We're human. We fail, don't we? We don't measure up sometimes. We're not everything that we should be. We don't always, as husbands, love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. We don't always do that. But the Holy Spirit of God indwelling a believer will never fail. And that should make us zealous about identifying anything in our life that would hinder that process. The Bible talks about quenching the Spirit. Doesn't it? What's the other one? Quenching and grieving the Spirit. It speaks of a relationship, does it not? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be in the protection of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's a wonderful thing to talk about this morning. I could go on and on, but let's look at John's words here as we kind of go through this verse. And he calls them, again, you brood of vipers. Did that have a particular meaning to people during that day, Jesus latched onto that. We'll see in a minute. He, he liked that phrase when he was talking about this group of people, uh, who uh, the Jews, uh, the religious Jews, the leaders who were leading the people astray. But this thing about being of a brood of, of vipers, he was talking about what would have been in their mind was this little small desert snake, I understand. They had a name for it. It's E-C-H-I-D-N-A. Echidna or Echidna, whatever, however you want to pronounce that. Exigna. Say what? Exigna. <laughs> Looks uh, like a stick. Yeah, uh, I've got deceptive. that right here. It was deceptive. 
So that was an element, perhaps, of what he was talking about. When he called them a brood of vipers, oh, you're calling us one of those little bitty, insignificant, yet very poisonous and deceptive-looking snakes. It says, actually, it looked like a branch laying on the ground. Okay? Whether or not they're still over there in the Middle East, I don't know. And it, it's reminiscent of uh, Acts chapter 28, you know, where Paul, after the shipwreck, was on the island of Malta. And it said he was putting the sticks in the, in the fire. And one came out and latched onto his hand, you know. And they were all saying, oh, it's judgment on Paul. He's escaped the sea, but justice has found him. You know, he's going to drop dead here in a minute and start foaming at the mouth. Well, he never did that. So then they said, oh, well, he was a god. You know, they started calling him. They thought he was a god. Because this thing would have killed you. And it killed everybody that it latched onto. But it didn't kill, kill Paul. It was one of those kind of things. So it wasn't a very pleasant thing to call someone, was it? And Jesus, in Matthew, later on in chapter 12, verse 34, he will refer to them again as a brood of vipers. And then when we get on over to chapter 23, we start looking at the eight woes that Christ pronounced upon the Jews. If you're familiar with that chapter, once again, in what verse 33, he calls them again a brood of vipers. Not a very nice thing, but a very accurate thing. Something that would cause you, particularly if you were a well-to-do religious leader, it would cause you to look at yourself. Alright, hey, am I being perceived as a, a poisonous viper? And Jesus would tell them plainly in Matthew 23, 13, He said this, I think this is the first woe of the eight, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, what you're teaching, what you're leaving, living, what you're preaching is nothing more than a big stumbling block to people. It's just religion. That's all it is. It has not, it's devoid of repentance. It's a deception. And you are deceived, because in those same passages, he'll call them blind leaders of the blind, or something like that three times. He's heavy on it. All in the defense, though you don't see it here, all in the defense of repentance. The necessity, if you will, of repentance. This is an important, important thing. And once again, we see its bearing on the life of John the Baptist and why he was considered great. You know, Paul would, Paul would pray for boldness, would he not? Pray that we might have boldness to preach what? That God has a plan for your life. Or that all the things that you want to do, the school you're trying to get into and you just can't find the money, you know, God can He can fix that for you. And I, and I understand we should trust Him in everything. But it's not a grocery list of things for us. It means nothing if we don't. Repent if our life doesn't belong to Him. If we haven't sought Him for deciding on the school anyway or what we want to do. Is this God's will? Is this the will of Christ in my life? Because my life belongs to Him. Why? Because He's forgiven me of my sins for all time and eternity, past, present, and future. He has my allegiance for life. And the word is clear. It will be for life. And it will be evident and if it becomes evident that it's not for life, then it never was. What is it? The faith 
that falters before the finish was flawed from the first. Something like that. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So that's what he what he tells us. Christ would continue on there in Matthew 23:33. He would say, "How will you now get this after? How will you escape the sentence of hell?" What do you picture from Christ? How do you how do you picture Christ laying that out for them? I'm talking about his personal demeanor. He always preached, even when it was hard, obviously, with, with love in his heart, but yet he knows the end. He knows who he's talking to. He knows the people that he's talking to that are not going to repent. He knows that. He knows the ones that are well past that. And he's talking about them and the ones who... The, the group that says you are, you do what you do by the power of Beelzebub, he knows who those people are. Those people who have already attributed the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. How do you, what do you think his demeanor was like? Just spitballing here a little bit. When he's saying these words, do you see him as a fiery preacher? Do you see him pointing his finger, looking at somebody and not blinking and getting their attention and throwing these words on them, knowing and this is the amazing part, knowing that the power of those words from Christ himself is not going to penetrate their heart because of what they've already decided. Can you imagine that? That is, that is just awesome to me. Why am I saying that? Because to play around with sin, to not repent, to latch on to something in our lives, whether it's a thing, an item, a pursuit, a relationship, or whatever, drains us of the ability to respond. You follow what I'm saying? We turn our back on the Word of God for so long, and it gets easier and easier and easier to do. We know this. So it's an important, important work. It's the most important work in our life to allow, if you will, to respond to the truth of God's Word, the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Changes everything. He says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And the word that he uses there, uh, there rather, to flee, is the same word that would be used like fleeing from a fire, fleeing because there's a, a danger there's, a, there's an identified danger, and it's, the picture is like the flames are licking you and you're running trying to get away from them. That's what John is saying. That's what they would have, how they would have pictured this when he said that. Pardon me. And he speaks of wrath, which is just simply the judgment of God. So he's saying, indeed, is it the judgment of God? Is it the power of His Word, the work of His Spirit that has convicted you? Is that why you're here for baptism? Is that why you're here? I know when I came to Christ, I was almost 14. It was probably a year before I was baptized into a church. Because uh, I did understand that baptism, though it was a command of, of Christ for those who were redeemed, a command to uh, be baptized. We understand that. We've already shared that this morning. But in, in that, I knew that I wasn't going to be a member of my parents' church. And don't ask me why I had nothing. It wasn't because they 
made me go and I had that drug problem, you know, where they drug me to church all the time. It wasn't anything like that. It was the work of God in my life. And I can only look back and see I'm just not where I was supposed to be. It wasn't because my girlfriend went to another church or anything like that. But from the beginning, the, the Lord began directing me and putting me where He wanted me to go for that particular time in my life. So it was a year or so, probably about 14 months before I was baptized. And it was a good day. John here is calling the religious leaders out publicly. He's doing that. We don't like that either, do we? We don't like that. And yet, particularly, particularly for leadership in the church, it's a necessity. We don't want to take that away. We don't want to take away that responsibility, that mandate on the lives of leaders and those who teach and preach and lead in the church. And there are often occasions in the lives of individuals, whether they're leaders in the church or not, where it's almost as if, based on the nature of their offense, where... Uh, as you might say, their confession won't be complete until they've done something publicly. That's not always true, but sometimes it can be that it's necessary to do that. Doing something publicly says in and of itself that I'm not worried about the attitude of people or the wrong attitude about of people toward me over my confession. I'm not worried that they see me differently or anything like that. I'm more concerned about being faithful to God. I'm more concerned about being clean in my own heart. I'm more concerned about Him using me and my example to help someone else. Because it's not about me. It's not about me. And that varies from incident to incident, but it might be reality for us sometimes. A message of judgment and repentance is necessary. It will always be necessary. Why why were these Pharisees why, and Sadducees, why were they coming in the first place? What do you think? We can only speculate. He doesn't say for sure. Uh, some who had heard him, and I'm sure this wasn't their first visit, uh, they came, maybe it was like, even today, maybe it was for fire insurance, okay? Uh, maybe they were just curious. Maybe they thought, like the people did at that time, that John was truly a prophet. Because he did, he got a crowd, but that's not always an, an indication, is it? Maybe it was that they were seeing evidence of repentance. Evidence of repentance. Maybe that evidence of repentance was affecting their economy a little bit, their operation. At any rate, it would be like the leaders of that day to be jealous of what was going on and to consider any large movement, any large religious movement, at least to be a potential threat against Judaism. Maybe that could be it. So they might be there just to investigate John. They don't mind going through the, the process if it will get them closer to him and uh, get them where they can come and sit and listen without being thought of as you know something evil, a brood of vipers. And maybe they just wanted to appear to be repentant because appearance was very important to many of them. Christ pointed it out, did he not? 
about the people who like to go out and pray in public and, and pray long prayers in public and to wear their clothes in such a way, the phylacteries and all that, in such a way that identified them as being very pious, very religious. Maybe that was in their thinking. We don't know. Maybe they just wanted to come out again and, and kind of take over the movement, move it toward you know mainstream Judaism. Maybe they could do that. We don't know. <coughs> but this we know through what the Holy Spirit reveals. John called them out. Did he not? He called them out. And all he did was say, look at your life. He took advantage of the opportunity. If you're truly coming in repentance, then there's going to be change. There's going to be change. And have you been? He says, who has warned you? Have you been warned? That's what this is about. Are you fleeing because you've come to terms with your sin? And you're running from the judgment that you know awaits you. Is that why you're doing this? Is that why you're, you're coming? And he points to God's wrath. But unfortunately, there's no indication that they were responding because of the Word or because of the work of the Spirit in their heart. I would like to think, well, no, wait a minute, maybe there was one there. Maybe there was a few there. And there may have been, but by and large... John's words were on target. And they would be on target for anyone. They're on target for us today. If the message that we go out and hear Shane preach today is a message, it's an evangelistic message that brings everybody to a point of repentance, then hallelujah. Okay? If we're anywhere along in our life, spiritually, in our sanctification, surely we're, we're, we're to the point where we can understand and appreciate conviction, right? We can understand and appreciate an opportunity to repent. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges every son and every woman, every daughter that believes. This is His work within us. It's about purity after salvation, is it not? It's about the ability to remain obedient. It's about being a fit vessel for the Master's use. These are things that should excite us. And we said, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. Because I'm a follower of Christ. I've trusted Christ. My life belongs to Him. So it's a welcome thing. And here, here it is. When we approach Him in that, in that manner, and we say, okay, Lord, you, you're on me. I, 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 I'm experiencing your presence. I'm experiencing your conviction. Show me what it is. Is it my attitude? Is it a word that I've left undone, unapologized for with someone or something? Who knows? Is it an action? Is it a neglect in my life? Am I fearful? And if, does that fearfulness reflect my unbelief, my unfaithfulness? What is it in my life? Show me that I might be repentant and be fully within the, the sphere of your direction. That's where I want to be. And when that happens, it's over. And we're free, if you will. And we experience, and it is an experience, we experience that the solidness, if you will, and I struggle for words, the, the, the closeness of that relationship. I try to stay away from feeling because feelings can be misleading. But it's a reality in our life. It's that, it's that reality that allows you to lay down at night and thank God that your heart is clean. And as best as you know, like Paul said, as far as I know, he said, <laughs> I'm not by this acquitted, but as far as I know, I'm 
I'm clean before you, Lord. What more can you ask? This is our relationship with the Heavenly Father through repentance who loves us and cares for us. He will strengthen us. But in order to do that, He's got to clean us up. He's got to clean us up. He's got to get the rust off. I just bought, uh, not too long ago, another car for Melissa. The one she had was 17 years old. Great little Lexus, but 17 years old. It was a 2000. And I bought a car, and I had to bring it down from Virginia. Hmm, so I got to thinking, I don't know what the weather's like up in Virginia. So I said, it's a CarMax car. So I said, y'all, look at that car now before you bring it down here. Because you have to pay money to bring it down here. I said, if there's rust under that car, don't even bring it. I don't, I don't want it. So they assured me that it wasn't. It got down here, and I took it over to Cobb County Toyota. And I said, y'all, look at this and tell me if there's anything. Just trying to be right about it. And uh, I saw, and actually, Melissa took it over there. And I looked on there, and it said, some rust. So I go over there on the way to work one morning, and I asked the guy. I said, there's rust on this? He said, don't worry. He said, if there's a speck of rust on it, I can't put on his documentation no rust. I have to put, put that. But he told me something that gave me great relief. He said, look, there's no more rust under that car than there are those brand new ones sitting out there on the lot. That's what he said. And before I could even ask, it's like he looked in my eyes and knew what the next question was. He said, and I would buy that car for my wife. There was nothing. He said, that's a great car. <laughs> buy it. I said, well, great. So it's fine. Because that rust, if it's left on there, it does what? It begins to grow slowly and corrode and it can get out of hand. You know, and I'm making a spiritual analogy here. Sin must be dealt with. It cannot be dealt with lightly. It's not like we all go around with a big stick to hit somebody with, you know, when we, when we see something going wrong. That's not our motivation. And when we examine ourselves, it's for the purpose of being able to hear the voice of God clearly and to be rightly motivated in what we do and to experience the peace, the liberty, the freedom, if you will, of knowing that we're in the center of his will. That's what we want, isn't it? I trust that's what we want. This is the work of a constant repentance, a continual repentance in our heart. So, John calls them out. He basically says, look at your heart, look at your motivation, make sure that you are indeed coming for the right reason. I think I can finish verse 8 and then we'll stop. Therefore, he says, he gives them a prescription here. You want to be sure about this thing? You want to be able to, to know beyond any doubt? He might even be saying, and I would like to know, okay? So I can rightly advise you here. You're coming to me for baptism and some sort of religious leadership, if you will. He says, therefore, bring forth or, or bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he makes it clear right here. And the New Testament will continue to make it clear throughout, as does the Old Testament, that the number one way, the number one method, if you will, of identifying validity, truth, a true conversion in somebody's heart is the life that's lived. It's the works of that life. Again, we're talking not perfection, but direction, as we like to say. That's a good general way to look at it. 
But at the same time, when we're, thought, when we're talking about the continual progressive sanctification of a true believer, we will see a decrease in sin in our life. A decreasing pattern. We will see victory. We'll see that. Will we ever see perfection? No. Will we ever find ourselves just doing something stupid that we know better than to do because of a weak, a reckless moment, a thoughtless moment when we're overcome by the flesh and we say something that's untimely, that's unhurtful, or we're involved in some kind of neglect in our life? Yes. But we call it what it is. Number one, because we know there's forgiveness. We don't presume upon that. But when it overtakes us, we call it what it is and we deal with it. And then we are brought back into rightful fellowship. The relationship can't be touched. Rest assured, you know that. It's Christ that keeps us. Or we would be on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again in our Christian life. And I'm talking in terms of salvation, but it doesn't work that way. No, he calls... And he keeps. That's what he does. And we can love him and praise him for that. So he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's laying it out there. And again, you'll see it many, many times in Scripture. <coughs> the word that he's talking about here, fruit, it can be a lot of different things. It involves, of course, and I got this right out of this uh, biblical doctrine book. It's very short, very succinct. It's on page 374 if you want it. But he says, Christian thinking and living in obedience to Scripture that honors God. Simple. There it is. That's what fruit is. Christian thinking and living in obedience. Obedience to Scripture that honors God. Simple. If you've got a question about some action, attitude, neglect or whatever, then you can weigh it. You can compare it against that simple definition. And you can make the assessments that you need to make to examine your own heart. There are basically six general categories that we talk about, or that they talk about here. He says that these things must be in keeping with. He's talking about having equal weight or worth. Okay? Axios is the word. He's talking about what God requires. It, kind of, it measures up. It's an example of what God requires. It passes the test, if you will. And he speaks of attitudes. You can find it in Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, love, joy, peace, the fruits of the Spirit. That's what he would be talking about there, those nine fruits, if you will. All goodness, all righteousness, all truth, these are encompassed when he talks about fruits. These are attitudes, all right? Then he speaks of actions from Colossians 1, where it mentions walking worthy, walking worthy, our manner of life, the way that we live, not being a contradiction in the things that we allow into our life. We read in Colossians 1, 110 particularly, Titus 3, 8 talks about good deeds. Verse 8 and verse 14 in Titus there. Doing good deeds. Because that's what we're motivated to do. It's because we care, because we love, not because we're trying to merit something. That's what he's talking about. So you've got attitudes, you've got actions. He speaks of worship in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. And there he's talking about specific actions of praise and thanksgiving, being truly thankful. And this is always a mark of a believer. 
Paul says in Romans 1, talking about those people, nor were they thankful, he says. It's focusing upon the bad things and what we don't have and what ain't and what should be. Paul says, no, we don't, we don't want to do that. In Hebrews, praise. Praising God. We have an opportunity to do that this morning. I always love it when I hear the church sing. I, I've, I've been in churches before where people didn't sing. They were so torqued about the music and the nature of the music, they just stood there. And it was like seven or eight people over here singing and four or five people over here singing. That's like throwing just cold water on the whole thing. And sometimes it was probably valid. I don't want to sing that song, okay? It's a worldly song. But for the church to come together and to be involved in genuine, sincere worship and praise, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, gospel telling, telling the gospel. It's all about converts. And when we look at these verses in Romans 1 and Colossians 1, it's for the purpose of gathering converts. That's a fruit, of course. Truth telling, uh, which deals with our confession primarily. We're talking about from a personal perspective. There are verses in Ephesians 5 9, 1 John 4 2, and then lastly, uh, abundant giving, he mentions. And there are a number of of verses Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 9, Philippians 4, you can read. These are the fruits that he's talking about. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. These are fruits that speak of repentance in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word today. Fill us with the power of your presence. Give us the courage that we need to follow you today and to be obedient to you. In Christ's name.